following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Thank you all. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. Darius, good to see you. Lawrence, excellent. Glad you're here. Our scripture reading for this week is found in Isaiah 33. Aren't you glad that God averts his eyes from your sin and sees them paid for in Christ? Isaiah 33. Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered, and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar, as the running to and fro of locusts, he shall run upon them. The Lord is exalted. For he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Now I will rise, says the Lord. I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you, and the people shall be like the the burnings of lime. Like thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fire. Hear, you who are afar off, what I have done, and you who are near. Acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions. Who gestures with his hands refusing bribes. Who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the majestic Lord will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley 
with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey, and the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. May God bless that, the reading of his word today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 24 today. 1 Corinthians 15, part 4 of our series in the resurrection this morning. And as I mentioned, uh, there, could, there will be a number of additional parts. This will bring us the, not quite uh, halfway through the chapter this morning. I hope this will be a blessing to you and a help to meditate on these verses and think about their truth. We do uh, kind of a heavy uh, Bible teaching ministry here. We're trying to learn the scriptures, and I want to make sure that uh, if it's not the most uh, entertaining or not the most dynamic, that it might be the most informative, and that it might inform your hearts and minds, and that there will be no reason that you or anyone else who participates in our ministry can go away and not know what you need to know from God's Word. This is a precious word. It is a rich word. Uh, It's a powerful word. And that's where we are in in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll start in verse number 20. I'll read and then make some introductory comments and then get into the text. The Bible says this, But now Christ is risen from the dead in response to his earlier supposition that uh, what, what would it be like if Christ was not raised from the dead. So he is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end. And I'll keep reading, although that's where we're going to stop. When he delivers the kingdom of God, to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now, you have uh, seen perhaps the the, uh, fourth line of the notes there, the date and location that I've noted. We had looked at this two years ago. I I couldn't believe that it had been already two years since we looked at this passage before in connection with the Resurrection Sunday. But uh, it is, and, uh, but now as part of our series, I want to connect it into where we have been in 1 Corinthians. Subject matter, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15 is the doctrine of the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ primarily, but also the resurrection of all people. And Paul defends the truth of the resurrection as a central and non-negotiable aspect of the Christian faith, of the good news of Jesus Christ. Anyone who denies the resurrection of Christ is outside of the bounds of Christian faith. Just put it out plainly like that. I do that so that you know what you're supposed to know and that anybody who who, uh, wants to 
deny that, at least knows where we believe that they stand, and they should, because if there's no resurrection, there is no Christianity. Let's just be frank about the matter. Paul explores then what the faith would be like if there were no resurrection, and that's what he did in verses 12 to 19, and uh, said, look, there's no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, then there's eight consequences to that idea. Then he explains some aspects of the glorious resurrection of believers and how it is our certain hope. And uh, I go through the the outline of the chapter here in the first page of the notes. Um, Christianity is, in fact, meaningful. Our, Our life, our work for God is meaningful. It's purposeful because, the Scripture says, our work is not in vain because the resurrection is true. We'll come to that in our last message in the series the resurrection were not true, then of course our Christian lives would be meaningless. So the outline is the message of the gospel, verses 1 to 11. We've looked at that. The core of that's in 3 and 4, but then you have the preamble in 1 and 2, and you have the supporting witnesses listed in 5 through 11. Then you have this hypothetical, what if there was no resurrection? Then chapter 15 goes on to talk about the resurrection culminating in the kingdom and glory of God. We're going to talk this morning about the resurrection of all people and then how that is going to connect into the kingdom will be next next message. And then uh, he goes back to this idea of Christianity being useless apart from the resurrection. So he kind of bounced back to the verses 12 to 19 when he comes to 29 to 34, again, rehearsing that important notion, hypothetical notion. Then there's a lengthy section that talks about the constitution of the resurrection body. And the idea of this portion of chapter 15 is this. There were a bunch of people in Corinth who were denying the resurrection at all. And one of the ways that they denied it was they said, look, with what body are you going to come out of this resurrection? They just said, that's silliness. You're dead. Your body's gone. It's decomposed. And so they said, what kind, of, what kind of body are you going to have? And so Paul says, and that's the question in verse 35. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an attack. It's a question that's an attack on the faith. And so Paul says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And he goes on and he's going to explain. We'll look at that in the message on that section of what the, the constitution of that body will be like. Many times people ask, what will my body be like? What will it be like in heaven? Uh, What will I look like? I don't know what you'll look like, but I do know certain things that this passage uh, explains about the characteristics or quality of the resurrection body and that it will be outfitted for eternal service and worship and fellowship and a perfect society that will be forever and ever. And then finally, he talks about the glorious resurrection of believers and gives really what amounts to a taunt of death, which has lost the battle against Christ and his people. Our message this morning will focus on the underlined portion on page one there of your notes, the fact of the bodily resurrection for all people. So we've gone through the terrible hypothetical. Now we're going to turn our attention to the resurrection and its implications. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And just as as last week's uh, hypothetical had consequences, okay, if this, then all these other things, well, since the resurrection, all these other things as well 
Let me share with you a couple of them, not from this passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, gives us one implication or consequence of the resurrection of Christ. The Bible says that he was delivered over because of our offenses, and he was what? Raised for our justification. It is because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead that we can be confident that our justification is completed. Okay, So the resurrection guarantees that our justification is completed. Okay, Number two, or letter B in my notes here, Acts 17, 30 to 31. The Bible there says that God, you know, kind of overlooked things, not exactly overlooked, but he was very patient with people in time past until Christ came. And it tells us in Acts 17, 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. You know, just because God has been gracious and merciful and long-suffering right along, doesn't mean that that continues forever. The Bible is very clear that at some point there is going to be a a termination of that long-suffering, patient mercy and grace, and the door is going to be closed on salvation. But he's made the provision. He commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a command, not an option, not just an invitation. Because, why, why do you want to repent? Why do you care to repent? If you're listening online, for example, and you're not a Christian, why would you care to repent of your sin? You know, sin is fun, right? Sin is enjoyable. Why would you want to repent? Because God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world, that includes you, in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. You say, well, I mean, that's kind of a risk, yes, to my sinful desires, but how do I know that guy is going to judge me? Well, the text tells us. He has given assurance of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. How do you know he's going to judge you? Because he rose from the dead. How do you know you're justified? Because Jesus Christ arose bodily out of the grave. How do you know that you're going to face judgment in the future? Because Jesus Christ rose bodily out of the grave and you will see him again sometime. And then Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the resurrection, prays for the people in uh, Ephesus and other faithful believers in the region and churches forever after that. Chapter uh, 1 of Ephesians, verse 19, Paul's praying that you would know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. I, I think of the phrase, you know, people walking around defeated all the time. Why should you do that? Why should you do that? The, I mean, if you think about... <laughs> we, we go around like this. I remember Dr. Sachs used to do that, right? That was his way of saying, you know... Mm-hmm poochie lip disease for our young people, right? We live like that. Don't we recognize what God is doing in us? Yeah, oh my soul. Lift up your eyes and look from whence comes your help. Look, look at God. I mean, Paul's saying, you know, 
don't be so downcast. Look at the great power that he works in us. How do we know that power? Well, we go right back to the resurrection of Christ, and he says that power he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That kind of energy, that kind of spiritual power means that you can live a successful Christian life no matter what things that you might face. We know the nature of the power of God at work in us by the power that he wrought in the resurrection of Christ. And you know what that power does in us? You say, man, pastor, you just don't know the sins, the temptations, the difficulties that I face. Yeah, I don't have to know that. I don't and I don't have to. But I know the power that's working in you if you're a Christian. And that power can help you overcome. I can't, I can't overcome, Pat. Huh. Yes, you can. By this power, if God can raise up Christ from the dead with that power, then don't tell me that he can't help you with your life issues and your struggle and sanctification and all of that. This is the power of God that works in us, and we know about it because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So those are just three consequences of the resurrection. I've listed those in page two of your notes there for you to ponder on in the future. But we go down to the bottom of that page, back to 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verse number 20 now. It says, Christ is risen from the dead. That's irrefutable. Okay, that's, that's if, if there's a, a fact you know, attested by history, proven in history, proven by eyewitnesses, it is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there's more evidence for that than there is for a lot of historical events that you read about in history. And you read them in your history book and you just say, oh, well, that's, that's what happened. I mean, that's what the history book says. That's what the history teacher says. You never ask, how many witnesses were there? You know, how many extant manuscripts are there? Are there any differences in those manuscripts? And all the stuff that people bother us about with the Bible... But the reality is, there are hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And he's, that's the only, pl- the reality of that's the only plausible explanation of why the church even came to exist, why the disciples would die for, a, why would they die for a lie? They wouldn't die for a lie, they wouldn't knowingly die for a lie, and you're not going to be able to get enough people uh, hallucinated up or confused or whatever, you know, hundreds of them at a time to get them to do what, Christian people do. I mean, why would people die in the Colosseum? Why would people die in in war? Why would people die burned at the stake for translating the Bible? I sometimes think about that. The work that we're doing in our Bible translation, people burned at the stake for doing that work, and we're privileged to do it today. That's amazing. But why would they do that if this was all a lie? They know Christ, the power of the resurrection. And so the resurrection is true. It's, it's, there's no question about the historicity of it. But then it says this, Christ is risen from the dead, and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If there's first fruits, that must mean there are second fruits. <laughs> that must mean there are more fruits. That's the idea of this. Okay, fallen asleep here is a euphemism for death. So don't read soul sleep there. We addressed that a few weeks ago already. Uh, fallen asleep is a very common euphemism in the Bible for people who have died. But the Bible is very clear that that sleep state is, is, is really of the body because it appears to be asleep. How many times have you gone to a funeral and just wished that the person in the coffin 
would wake up. Have you ever had that experience? I just wish Grandma would wake up because she looks asleep, you know. But her soul is elsewhere. God has called her, she's a believer, to heaven. And she is very much alive there, very much awake and conscious, as the Scripture tells us. That's asleep. But first fruits is the Old Testament idea, comes from the Old Testament, of the first and best part of the harvest of, of uh, agriculture. It was given to God as a, a thanks offering and represented the uh, gratefulness of the believer, but also was associated with the hope that God would bring the remainder of the harvest in. Let me share with you just on that. I know you're familiar with this idea, but Deuteronomy will use that passage, Deuteronomy 26. We could go to, we could go to a number of passages that mention the first fruits uh, idea, but we'll use this one in Deuteronomy 26, verse 8. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought... This is a worshiper coming to God and reciting this worshipful statement, this reminder of their historical faith. I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. Just think about that. Everything you have, God has given you. So you bring the first fruits of that even before the rest of the harvest comes in. Then, then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. So this is an expression of God's goodness Indeed, to give us all the good gifts that he does and that first fruits offering. So God and Christ actually reflect this back to humanity. Normally, it's humans bringing a first fruits offering to God. But here, it's God offering a first fruits of a, and guaranteeing of something that's going to come later. Christ is the first to be resurrected of a host of people who will be resurrected with a body like his. So consequent to Christ's resurrection, many others will experience the same. That's why he's called the first fruits. He's not the only one. His resurrection is not a mere wish. Like some people read, I was speaking with Naomi about this passage in Philippians 3 where Paul says, I hope to attain to the resurrection of the dead. You ever read that? You don't read that with an air of uncertainty about it. You read it with the idea that Paul is striving for that and he wants that. Now I'd like to have it, the resurrection of, of Christ from the dead and the, my resurrection with him and to know him and the power of his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. He wants to know that in real experience in his life. Now, this says that he's the first fruits. So somebody might say, well, wait a minute. Weren't there others who were resurrected before Jesus? And you can probably think of some. There were some resurrected by Jesus. Lazarus, the son of the widow of Nain. You have examples in the Old Testament. Well, you have Tabitha or Dorcas in the book of Acts. You have examples in the Old Testament with Elisha and Elijah. Yes, you have the daughter of Jairus the uh, leader of the synagogue, all kinds of examples. 
And so how do you deal with it? Well, are they the first fruits or is Christ really the first fruits? And here's my answer to that, that I had, I'd, you know, I laid this out a couple of years ago to you, but we're just kind of detailing it again here this morning. Apparently, these people were resurrected to natural bodies and had to go through the regular process of life again, and uh, we, we trust and hope that their second time through uh, was not painful or difficult, that God had mercy upon them. But I take first fruits to mean that Christ is the first resurrected with a glorified body. I think this, this passage is the answer to that conundrum that he's first because he, he got that, that final resurrection body first of anyone, not Lazarus, not the you know, uh, Tabitha or, or Jairus' daughter or whatever. So that's how I understand uh, first fruits, to receive a glorified body first. All right, now, um, it's God's design. Well, look at this uh, in verse 21. For since by man came death. It's God design, God's design that since a man brought death upon the world, Another man was going to bring life upon the world. Okay, so just stop for a moment and think. The doctrine, the false doctrine of evolution that we're all taught is directly opposed to this understanding from Scripture. Okay? This says, by man came death. According to evolution, how did death come? It was just a part of life. It was, in fact, the fuel, a part of the fuel along with time and chance and random mutations that allowed the survival of the fittest to go from one level to the next to the next. Death has always been with us. Death, they would say, if they looked at this, they would say, no, death did not come by man. God says death did come by man. So the question for you is, who are you going to believe? God or the, the scientists? Who? Amen, sister. Amen. That's who we want to go with. What makes us, what makes us, I, listen, I'm, I'm a scientist, but what makes us the authority? What makes me be so smart or those people at the university or those people in the media or in society? So why don't you people believe science? Because science is wrong on very many things. That's why. And science, by the way, doesn't answer historical questions. Like how did... How did the world, when did the world come into existence? Science, that whole, you've got to differentiate, as Answers in Genesis often does, between operational science, you know, the scientific method and, you know, repeatable experiments and all of that, versus historical science, okay? Two different things. But we act like they're all one and the same. No, it's fine. We, we can do experiments, and I'm an engineer, and I've done all that stuff and written a thesis and everything else using those methods. But those methods, when they assume that God doesn't exist and everything is a result of natural processes and time and chance and all of that, run afoul of the Christian faith 100%. Now, we've got to depart from, from them at that point when they make the move from operational to historical observation or scientific uh, uh, methods, if you will. So, evolution says man did not bring death. The Bible says man did bring death. Uh, it's very clear. 
And, and I, th- I just don't understand how there are so many scientifically-minded Christians that say, look, we have to believe what science says. <laughs> Absolutely no, you don't. I'm a scientist here to tell you that. Um, because the Bible is very clear. Romans chapter 5, sin entered the world and death through sin. Evolution says, no, there is really no such thing as sin. And uh, death came before, long before there was any humans on the scene. Uh, it contradicts Genesis chapter 1 and 2, contradicts the, the Ten Commandments, contradicts Exodus 31:17 about how God created the heavens and the earth, and many other passages of Scripture as well as even some of the words of our Lord Jesus. So very clear that the Bible says, by man came death, period. That just blows up a whole bunch of other things that our world believes, right? blows them right out of the water. All right, so thus Christ brought life back from the dead. By the end of the world, he will have reversed the effects of the curse for his people. And unfortunately, for those who do not belong to Jesus, the effects of the curse will, in effect, continue forever. Death, eternal death. Now, Paul then makes this assertion that like all people die in Adam, all will be raised to life. Uh, look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die. Okay, that's easy enough, right? Besides these little examples of resurrection once in a while, which are exceedingly rare, I mean, death still has the upper hand by 99.999999. Just put that on a repeat loop for a while, percent. Okay, um, all die. We understand that. Graveyards are full, of, th- uh, full of, the, of the fulfillment of these words. Even so, in the same manner, in the same way, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now, I don't want to make too big of a deal about this, but there are two times the word all is used there, and I get mystified when interpreters spend a lot of effort making the first all big, and the second all, small. The first all is all humanity. The second all, they say, they say, I don't say, but they say is just believers. All will be made alive. But let me, let me unravel that viewpoint by taking you to a couple of portions of Scripture. Go back to Acts 24, please. Again, remember the view that I'm not trying to pick on it too hard, but I'm just saying when you, when you look at this verse, you might immediately think even in Christ all shall be made alive. Well, it sounds like Christians. You know, We know we're going to be alive. Well, where does that leave the unbelievers? What about them? Well, look at Acts 24, verse 15. Paul says, I have hope in God which they themselves, that is the the people opposing him, the Jews who are opposed to him, charging him with wrongdoing, they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Both of the just and the unjust. I believe that when Paul says all, both times he's using all in an expansive way. All does not refer only to Christians. I think all refers to all of humanity. Now, of course, not all are in Christ in that technical way of being saved, obviously. 
Okay, um, but still here, all is all of humanity: Christians, Jews, Gentiles, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, unbelievers of all ages, everybody. <clears throat> Revelation uh, twenty does the same thing that Paul did here. Paul was talking about how the just and the unjust will be raised from the dead. Revelation 20 says there's going to be one resurrection, and then the rest of the dead do not live until what? The thousand years are finished. It's very explicit. Again, there are people who deny that too. We don't. We just take it as it is written. Okay. Um, and then you have portions like John chapter 5 or... Uh, turn in your Bible if you want to. Uh, we'll go to Daniel first. Go to Ezekiel, then Daniel, chapter 12, last chapter in Daniel. Look in Daniel 12, verse 1 and verse 2. Um, talks about Michael, the great prince, angel, defender of Israel, is going to stand up and help Israel. And verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Sounds like believers and unbelievers, doesn't it? Okay, uh, the other one is in John chapter 5. Do I have that listed here in the notes? Somewhere maybe. Yep, John five twenty-eight. Jesus said this, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. There's the all again. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Well, that sounds like everybody's pretty much included, doesn't it? Yep, you don't have to worry. You're not going to be left out of resurrection. The question is, what kind of resurrection are you going to get? If you're a believer, fine. If you're not a believer, not so good. So this is the resurrection of the just and of the unjust, Okay. Um, you know, and as I said, I'm not trying to make a humongous point out of this, but I think it's reasonable to say that the grounding or the reason of the resurrection of both the just and the unjust is the resurrection of Christ. Why? <clears throat> the unbelievers will say, we just focus on them, they do not remain dead precisely because Jesus did not remain dead. Okay? The reason that they rise is that, excuse me, he arose from the dead. Thank you for that cup of water. <clears throat> Your reward will not go away from the Lord. <clears throat> um, and that will also help my voice for the next couple of minutes. So, why do, why do the unbelievers rise from the dead? Why do believers rise from the dead? Well, the reason is because Christ arose and conquered death. The only reason anyone can be raised from the dead is because Christ arose. Anyone, believers or unbelievers, okay? And I'm making the, the, the statement here to kind of drive home the point that there is no hope of resurrection unless Christ is raised and that... Every person faces a resurrection, a physical bodily resurrection, because Christ rose from the death. He is the master of death. He has the keys of death and of Hades. 
doesn't he? What, what do you do with such keys? Well, he uses them. He raises people up from the dead. Okay? So he sealed the fate of the unbeliever that they would be raised and then judged before God. Remember Acts 17? God commands all men everywhere to repent because he's going to judge them. And how do you know that's true? He's given assurance because he's raised up Jesus, that man who is the judge from the dead. Okay, so we, all, all people will rise. And, and this, is a, this is one of those things that brings a real point to the gospel message. Your unbelieving family and friends, too, will arise from the dead. Okay? But what that's going to look like for them is a little bit uh, unpleasant. Unbelievers are going to die and experience the horrors of Hades immediately after they pass. Then they will be resurrected. And what's the first thing they're going to see after they're resurrected? A great white throne. Earth and heaven flee away. And there they are standing before God and Christ. And they're going to be judged on the basis of their works. And if their names are not found written in the book of life, the Bible says they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. Now, I'm not saying that. The Bible said that. So because the Bible is saying that, I am saying that. But it doesn't come from my authority. It comes from the word of God. That's it. For the believer, what happens when we die? We experience the blessings of heaven. And at some point along in there, we have the judgment seat of Christ in which we receive the reward for faithful service to God. And then forever after that, continue in bliss and with blessing and in, in fellowship with other believers and with God for all eternity. Now, some people ask the question, and well, when do all these resurrections occur? Paul is going to answer that now in verses 23 and 24. And he says this, each one in his own order. You could read this like each one in his own group, each one in his own assigned time. And then he's going to give us three groups. Okay? Listen to them again. First, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ that is coming, and then comes the end. Okay? So I'm going to argue that there are three resurrections listed here. And the first one is Christ, the first fruits. By the way, this word, these words here where it says in his own order, and you have afterward and the word then, these are clear time indicators. Okay, there's no question about this. There's number one, this resurrection. Number two, this one. Number three, this one. I mean, Paul might as well have written it in outline form with one period, two period, three period. That's what he's doing here. Very clear to me as you diagram the passage. Christ the first fruits, first glorified resurrection body. We talked about that earlier. It's the pattern of all other resurrection bodies that come after. You will be made like him. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. You know, from heaven we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to subdue all things under his power, including to, to transform your bodies to be like his glorious body. Remember that passage? That's what Christ is to do with us, and God will do. 1 John 3, 2, we will see him as he is. Yeah, he will make us. We will become like him because we will see him as he is. Now, now, that may well speak to our morally pure likeness to Christ. 
And my friends, wouldn't that be enough? Forget the physical aspect. You know, we kind of think of how, how's my, how am I going to be when I get resurrected? What's my body going to be like? What powers am I going to have? You know, can I fly and all that sort of stuff, okay? The real issue is not your physical appearance. God will take care of all that. It's kind of a detail. The fact that you will be morally pure like Christ without sin, that's enough. Who cares about it? You could have horns coming out of your head or whatever. You know, you could be a little green man from Mars in heaven. I don't care. You're not, but I mean, the fact that you're morally pure, no sin nature left, can you imagine? That's the long goal that we've been looking for as Christian people. We, we tire, we admit, we grow weary of battling sin sometimes, don't we? But... You will not have to deal with that forever because you will be made like Jesus Christ. Okay? Christ the first fruits. Then the second group, it says, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. So there's a, a, a there's two things here actually. Notice this. Afterward, those who are Christ's, that is, they have a personal connection to him, and then it gives the when at his coming. So it's who and when. Who are these people? The people with a personal connection to Jesus. They will be raised in the second order of resurrections. These are saved people, not unbelievers. Now, there's a question about when exactly is all this going to occur. I'll tell you just briefly, and you can look at the notes to find the details because we're running short on time, but this resurrection, we're talking about believers, is going to happen at the rapture of the church just before the tribulation on the world. Now, there's a question then, well, what about the people of the Old Testament who were Christians? You know, the Davids and, and, uh, and, and Hezekiahs and, and Solomons, we believe, at the end of his life, thankfully, finally, and so on and so forth. What about those guys? Well, the, and all the faithful women that came uh, in the Old Testament, when, when, when they will be raised? Well, they're not technically church saints, so I don't... They don't have to be raised when the church is at the rapture, but certainly before or at the very beginning of the millennial kingdom, they will be raised in order to enjoy the blessings of the promises given to them in the Old Testament. They will be able to dwell in the land in peace in the millennial kingdom. David will be there. Great question, brother, about that. Uh, and, and all the saints from the Old Testament before, they will be there in this kingdom. So the resurrection will occur this is the first resurrection according to Revelation. It will be just before and just after the tribulation. I just I keep I put those together in one group. This is this group, the second group. Um, and so, you know, as dispensationalists, we're able to give a little bit more of a, a detailed answer to this question about Old Testament saints. Um, and uh, because we can go to Revelation 20 and see, well, it looks like the saints are there, reigning in the kingdom with Christ. So that's good. Um, so what about the, the timing again? So that's the who, and then we've already kind of touched on the timing, but um, the afterward word here. And, you, you know, you think, hmm, that's interesting. Each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Now, when did that happen? About 2,000 years ago. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. When did that happen? Well, it hasn't happened. So there's a distance of time between the first group and the second group. Are you with me? Are your minds still processing? I know it's lunchtime, but hang, hang with me for another minute here. Um, 
uh, a bodily resurrection will occur at some point in the future, hopefully the near future, at the rapture, which will be separated in time from the first 2,000 years ago until this, this second group comes. Then, if there's that much distance of time between the first and the second, couldn't it be plausible that there would be a distance of time between the second and the third? Or maybe from your perspective, Christ, us, and then the end. That's the third group. There is a distance of time there, and Revelation 20 says it. I mentioned it already, but let me just turn there and show you that I'm not just making stuff up here. Revelation 20, verse number 4. John saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed. So here we are in a governmental context, people ruling over the world. Some of them had been beheaded for their witness to Christ. Now they were reigning, so they had been resurrected, obviously. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So obviously resurrection is is in the context here. Then he says this, John does in verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Okay, then it has this phrase that you might think, boy, I wish you'd put it in a different spot, but this is the spot he put it. This is the first resurrection, okay? What he means is, verse 4 is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead don't live till after the thousand years. That'll be the second. Now, when I say in Revelation, first and second, that's relative. Because really we know Christ is the first fruits then Revelation's first group is the second group we've been talking about. And the third group in, in 1 Corinthians is the second resurrection in Revelation. Okay, it's, it's not that hard to follow. It's just in Revelation, we're setting aside number one, Christ, who's always number one, and putting him off because we know he's there and dealing with the other two that are left. So the reign of Christ will occur and between, after, before that, the first resurrection, after that, the second resurrection, okay? All right, now, those are the orders of the resurrections, okay? I hope that's clear. Each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. afterward those are Christ that is coming, then comes the end. But take away these truths. Number one, all people will be raised from the dead. Each one at a designated time in the group that they're in, saved group or unsaved group. Second or third uh, in the groupings listed in 1 Corinthians 15. Everybody will be raised from the dead. Okay? Very convicting thought. Very, it should be for unbelievers listening to this message who are struggling with their sin, who are, what I mean by that is who are weighed down inside. They know they have sin. They know they have displeased God. They know, you know that there is a penalty for sin. Do you not? And then you face up to this truth and say, I am going to be resurrected. I am going to stand before Jesus as judge. And then what? Am I going to be okay or am I not going to be okay? Well, the message of the gospel is you certainly can be okay if you turn from your sin and and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Very easy. Very easy, I say. But remember... You want to leave behind that struggle with your sin? Then trust in Christ. If you want to go back to that lifestyle and live that way, well, you're just going to have to face the reality that you will be raised from the dead. All people will be raised from the dead, each at a designated time, and will face the judgment that God has ordained for them.
Secondly, Adam's sin brought death to everyone. But Christ's righteous act conquers death and brings eternal life to all who belong to him. So this is another, I can say what I just said before another way. Are you more closely related to Adam or are you more closely related to Christ? Who is your, you know, who's your man? Okay. As for me and my house, we're following Jesus Christ. Adam, we came from Adam, but we had to get out of that situation because Adam brings death. Adam's standing for sin and judgment and death and unrighteousness and all of that. We had to escape from his race, as it were, and come into Christ. And thirdly, as discouraging and disappointing as death is, every funeral I think of this, and every funeral practically I think of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, weeping. Why? He, he already knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Why? Because of the, 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 the terrible cost of sin and death in the world that millions upon millions upon billions of souls have died because they belong to to Adam's race. And as discouraging and disappointing as that is, look, I don't look forward to aging. You know, I don't don't like it that much. I'd rather stay, you know, young and fit and perfectly healthy. and, And some of you have, you know, expressed similar kind of things. But you know what? This is the only world we live in. It's the world that the Bible tells us about. It's the world that's true. It's the world that has sin in it and death. But as discouraging and disappointing as that is, it's not the end of your existence. Because Christ raised from the dead, you shall too. And if you're in him, salvifically in him, then you will be rescued from your sin and, as he said, you will be saved. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for that wonderful truth that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is a resurrection and there is a resurrection to life for those that are in him. How we thank you for that. Lord, help us to use this not only as as an impetus to be encouraged in the faith, but also to encourage us to evangelism because we know every person will rise from the dead. There is no such thing as annihilationism, not for unbelievers, not for people who believe in atheism. There, there's, there's, there's no such thing as that. It's all imaginary, that stuff. What is real is that all will be raised and face judgment. So I pray that this will drive us to share the gospel with as many as we can in the name of Christ. Amen.